1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: The Peter Schiff Show. Back on May 1st when I did my podcast, I officially called for the end of the bear market rally that so many people had confused for a new bull market. And the, uh, the impetus for that call was the Fed coming out and not living up to the expectations that Wall Street had for just how dovish the Fed was. Remember, the, the market was starting to factor in rate cuts, not just an end of the tightening cycle, but the beginning of the next easing cycle. And Jerome Powell basically threw cold water on that by talking about how low inflation was transitory and how he expected it to go back up. And all of a sudden, the markets were starting to think that the Fed wasn't going to cut rates and the market went down a bit. And I thought that given that the rally was built based on the Fed, that what the Fed giveth by being more dovish. Uh, than the markets expected, the Fed had finally taken away by being more hawkish. Even though I didn't believe that the Fed was, quote unquote, or as hawkish as the markets believed, I believe that uh, the Fed is far more dovish than the markets believe. But once Powell dashed those hopes, that was enough, I thought, uh, to take the wind out of the sail of the rally. And then, of course, Donald Trump himself pulled the rug out from under the market when the following weekend, he basically threw down the gauntlet on the trade war, tweeted out that he was going to be imposing 25% tariffs across the board on Americans who want to buy any Chinese products. And then the markets really started to fall. Although I said at the time that the markets, if they really perceived how great the threat was, They would have been down quite a bit more, but we have been falling. We now have two uh, back-to-back, better-than-200-point declines in the Dow. In fact, at one point today, the Dow Jones was off better than 400 points. We are down rather precipitously so far during the month of May. In fact, a lot of traders probably wish they had sold on May 1st and gone away. Uh, the Dow and S&P are both down five and a half percent so far this month. The uh, Russell 2000 down six and a half percent. The Nasdaq composite down 6.8 percent, leading the way down the transports. Dow transports down eight and a half percent. This index is now at least back into official correction territory, right? We're down about 11 and 12 percent, I think, from the high again I still think we are in a bear market. I do not believe that the rally that we had following the Fed's pivot constituted a brand new bull market that is now already probably over, and this is a new bear market. I think this is the same bear market. But I did not believe that that bear market rally would be as strong as it ended up being. Remember, I did predict that rally. I predicted the rally before it happened. I predicted while the market was still going up before it declined, that it would eventually roll over based on the Fed's rate hikes. And eventually that happened. I mean, the market went up for a while before it finally came crashing back down to earth. And as the market was falling, I kept saying that the Fed was going to rescue the market, especially if it got down to or close to bear market territory, which is exactly what they did. I said the Fed was going to come to the rescue by taking the rate hikes off the table, you know, by this is it, no more rate hikes. And that's exactly what they did. Now, I said that the rally that would result from that about face would be a bear market rally. And I think I was right, although the rally was higher than I thought. I did not think that you would see new highs in the NASDAQ or the S&P, but we did make them, just barely. Now, maybe because this is the longest bull market in U.S. history that it is not going to die easily. It's not going to give up without a fight. And so the bulls try their hardest to uh, rally this market. And, of course, bear market rallies are designed to create false hope. They are designed to make you think that you're still in a bull market or that it's a new bull market. It is a trap for the bulls. And this bear market rally was so strong that it actually made new highs. Now, not all the indexes made new highs, just some of the indexes made new highs, but they couldn't sustain those highs. They barely got above them, and then they got clobbered, and now we are uh, falling. And to me, I think we are going to revisit those lows, and that is what is going to prompt the Federal Reserve uh, to again come to the rescue of the market Only this time, it's actually going to have to do something. It can't just talk. It can't just change expectations about future rate hikes. In fact, the market again is now pricing in cuts. Even though the Fed basically took those cuts off the table back on May 1st, the market is pricing them back in again and pretty much daring the Fed to cut rates. And eventually, the Fed is going to acquiesce, but it is not going to work. And... The only thing I don't know for sure is how much longer the Fed will wait. I mean, if the Fed waits until we're officially in a recession, well, then they're just going to go straight to zero, right? They're not going to pass go. But if they started cutting rates sooner, like maybe next week or something, then maybe it's possible they only go a quarter point or a half point. But that's not going to be enough. That is going to do nothing. That's going to be like waving a, um, a scarf at a bull. Right? Because the minute the Fed cuts, the markets are going to push them to cut more. Because a quarter point, 50 basis points is going to do nothing to revive the economy. It is going to do nothing to revive the markets. In fact, I don't even believe that a return to quantitative easing is going to revive the markets. Just because it did it before, it doesn't mean it's going to do it again. Because the size of the QE program that would be required, because remember, Whenever you blow up a bubble and then it pops and then you blow up a bigger one and then that bubble pops, you always need to replace the bubble that popped with an even bigger one. And to blow a bigger bubble than the one that just popped, the amount of air that the Fed would have to blow into it is too much, right? The size of the QE program that would be needed would destroy the dollar. Remember, when the Fed did quantitative easing the last time, when the Fed the financial crisis hit, the dollar was at an all-time record low. Gold was at an all-time record high, and so you know the dollar rallied back, and that you know kept the pressure off of inflation. It kept you know prices down, and that helped out the Fed. That helped out the economy. But that is not where we are now. The dollar, at least the trade-weighted dollar, is back near record highs. Gold is near the end of a long bear market that we've had, or a correction for this new secular bull market that started around the year 2000. So we're at a different place. And if you look at what's happening beneath the surface, the inflation pressures have been quietly building for years, and the Fed simply throws gasoline on the fire when it takes rates back to zero and launches quantitative easing. But the markets still don't get this, right? Look at the yield curve today, I mean, we are now officially really inverted because you have the 10-year yield now finally below the three-month T-bill. The yield on the three-month is 2.35%, and on the 10-year, we are at 226 So you have the curve inverted all the way out to 10. Now, the 30-year yield is 269 so the 30-year yield is still the highest yield on the curve, And it's still higher than the 10 and the three month and the two year. And the two year is at two spot one, one, but you have an inversion still. The two year is lower than the three month, but the 10 year is not lower than the two year. So you don't have it inverted at that part of the curve, but you have the 10 year inverted with the three month. Now, who knows? Is it possible that the 10 year can invert below the two year? I suppose the one thing I think is not going to happen is the inversion is not going to go out to 30 years. I I do not think there's any way the yield on the 30 year is going to go below the yield on the 10 year. I don't think the market is that dumb. I mean, maybe, 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 again, maybe I'm overestimating people's intelligence, but I really don't think that that is going to happen. Because what everybody is getting wrong is that the next recession is going to be bearish for bonds, not bullish for bonds. Right. That is what everybody believes. Everybody thinks if we have a recession and the bond market, make no mistake about it, the bond market is saying we're going to have a recession. I mean, the yield curve is inverting. Not only is that a good indication that a recession is coming, but it does show you that bond investors are betting that a recession is coming because they believe that the Fed is going to slash rates as a result of the recession. And so the bond market is moving in anticipation of what it believes the Fed is going to do. Because obviously, if we go into recession, the Fed is gonna slash rates back down to zero, in which case the yield curve would no longer be inverted because the yield on the 10-year is not gonna go all the way to zero. So the market is getting ahead of the Fed because it is anticipating what it believes the Fed is going to do. Now, the market is correct. We are going into recession and the Fed is going to respond to this recession the same way it responds to all the recessions that it causes. And that is by doing more of what caused it, which is slashing interest rates back to zero. But what the markets, I think, have got wrong is the reaction. Because the recession that we're going to get this time is going to be stagflation. We are not going to have uh, stable prices or a drop in, you know, in, in the official inflation rate. Inflation is going to rise. And that means that bond prices are going to fall. And that is going to exacerbate the severity of the next recession. You know, I was listening to some fool on CNBC today, talking about how the Fed has got it wrong on rates and they need to cut rates. And the reason he was saying that was because inflation is below their target and falling and what his fear is is that the next recession will enter a recession with inflation expectations too low. And so in other words, we're going to have really low inflation in the next recession. And according to this guy, that's going to make the next recession much worse because we don't have enough inflation. And it's going to be harder for us to get out of that recession because of how low inflation is. I mean, Complete and utter nonsense. And the guy's got it backwards. What is going to make the next recession so bad is going to be that inflation is higher. See, normally, or at least what's been happening recently, a, a drop in inflation has been a cushion during a recession. It has helped the consumer because it's the, the cost of living has not gone up, but it's also allowed the Fed to slash interest rates. And when you have all this debt in the economy, lower interest rates provide a lot of relief to consumers, to homeowners, to businesses during the recession, easing the pain of the recession. But if the next time the Fed slashes short-term interest rates, inflation spikes up, and that means that long-term interest rates don't go down, they go up and they follow the inflation rate higher, then that is going to exacerbate the pain of the next recession because now all these Americans that enter that recession with all this debt, now that debt becomes more expensive, right? They don't get uh, the cushion of, it, of having their mortgage rate go down, you know, when they've lost their job, their mortgage rate could go up if it's an adjustable rate mortgage, but they're not going to have the ability to refinance and try to pull cash out of their home to try to get them through the recession. Corporations are not going to be able to make up for a fall in their earnings, with a fall of the cost of servicing their debt. That's not going to happen. The same thing with the government. As long-term interest rates are going up, that means that if they're trying to borrow at the longer end, uh, it's going to increase the cost of rolling over the debt, which, of course, is going to push the government shorter and shorter in duration, exposing the budget, the taxpayer, to greater and greater interest rate risk. So the uh, stagflation that we're coming to is bad for bonds. The bond market still hasn't figured this out yet. They still think that we're going to follow the playbook from the last financial crisis. We're not. That's why the dollar was up again today. Even though the stock market's getting killed, the bond market is flashing recession, the dollar is rising in value. Gold wasn't up at all today. I mean, maybe it was up a buck or two. It was very flat, and it was down a few dollars yesterday. So these big back-to-back sell-offs in the stock market did not produce any buying of gold because nobody is worried about inflation nobody is worried about the dollar even the people in the bond market who are worried about recession think that's a good thing because they think that that means that bonds are going to go up because the fed is going to cut now why the stock market doesn't see this recession coming i mean all the stock market bulls out there still think we're going to bypass recession they're ignoring The obvious clue from the bond market, they are ignoring the inverted yield curve and making excuses why this time it's different and we shouldn't pay any attention to what's happening in the bond market. The carnage in the retail sector continues. In fact, the retailers were among the biggest losers on the day. The debacle du jour was Abercrombie and Fitch. This stock was down 26.5% today, today. Based on the fact that they missed earnings, they're going to be closing some stores. Again, you can't chalk this up, as I said on the last podcast, to people shopping on Amazon. That's part of it, but it is only one part of the story. It goes much bigger than that. The retail retailers are in trouble because the consumer is broke. Right? He is out of credit. He is out of money. And soon he's going to be out of a job. Yes, a lot of people still have low-paying jobs, which enable them to continue to get credit and buy stuff they can't afford. But that's coming to an end, and we are hastening the demise of the American consumer uh, by poking the the, the Chinese rattlesnake into this trade war under the false uh, confidence that we're such an important customer that they have to keep loaning us money so we can keep buying products that we can't pay for. So that's coming to an end. So all of this stuff is building at the same time, and it is going to explode, not the way anybody believes it. Right. This is not going to be a mild recession. And again, even the people in the stock market who think it's possible we might have a recession, they still think we're not going to have one. But they'll concede if we do have one, it's going to be mild. And there's nothing that would lend you to believe that the next recession is going to be mild. But not only is it going to be worse than the Great Recession, which was the worst recession since the Great Depression, but it is going to include inflation. It's going to be stagflation worse than what we had in the 1970s with no escape. Remember, the only thing that saved us in 1980 from the 1970s was Volcker jacking interest rates up to 20% and Ronald Reagan trying to roll back big government. What we are looking at in the future is the opposite of Volcker. We're not going to have a Paul Volcker. We're going to have an MMT guy, you know, modern monetary theory, nonsense, whatever that is. We're going to go to MMT and we're going to have the opposite of Reagan. We're going to have a left-wing uh, you know, democratic socialist that's going to try to dramatically expand the size of government, not shrink government like was Reagan's goal, even though he didn't accomplish it. But at least that was what he was trying to do. And he did uh, lower tax rates significantly and simplify the tax code. And there was some things that, that, that Reagan did. But one of the most important things is that we reinstalled confidence in the dollar. We stopped the inflation. We let interest rates go up. And that was a key. But we can't do that anymore because we have way too much debt for that to happen. The Fed has put us into a box from which there is no way out. Either we dramatically increase interest rates and allow a worse financial crisis than 08, where nobody gets bailed out, making it that much worse, including the federal government, which has to default on its debt. Or, you know, we go uh, Banana Republic style. We go, uh, you know, with printing money. And that's exactly where we're headed. And again, what people are overlooking is the reason everybody thinks that quantitative easing worked last time is because everybody believed it was temporary. I mean, everybody, but me, when, when Ben Bernanke went before Congress and said, we are not monetizing the debt. We are just buying these bonds temporarily until the emergency is over. I called him out on the spot, on my show, on the Peter Schiff radio show at the time. And I said, he is lying. He is monetizing the debt. That is exactly what he is doing. None of these bonds will ever be sold. And I was right. All the bonds that were bought back then are pretty much still on the books of the Fed because the balance sheet has only shrunk from $4.5 trillion to just below $4 trillion, $3.9 trillion, And they're almost done uh, with the shrinkage. That's it. The Fed was claiming they were going to bring the balance sheet back to where it was before the crisis started, which would mean that there was no monetization of debt. But if all the Fed does is bring the $4.5 trillion balance sheet down to three point eight And then they crank it back up again, well above 4.5. That proves conclusively that this is not temporary emergency measures, that that debt has been permanently monetized. And what that means is the debt, the bonds, are turned into money, Federal Reserve notes, that those bonds are never going to be sold. They are going to be on the Fed's balance sheet indefinitely. And when they mature, the the Fed is just going to take the money and buy more bonds. Right? So that is a permanent debt monetization. That is massive inflation. And it means that the Fed doesn't have the tools to rein in inflation because those bonds can't be sold. Right? They can't drain the liquidity that they created because doing so would collapse the entire bubble that was inflated or built on, the, on that foundation. And the Fed has already proved that that's the case. But the markets don't get it, but they will. When we go back to zero and we go back to QE, and again, the move down to zero, that's, what, 200 basis points? That's nothing. The Fed needs far more stimulus than that to try to blow a bigger bubble than the one we just had. So it's all going to be based on quantitative easing. That's where all the fuel is going to come from. And it's going to be much bigger than what we had. QE3 was $85 billion a month. This is going to be more like $200 billion a month or $300 billion a month. And I'm not even sure how the Fed is going to administer all this, because I think a lot of it is probably going to go through uh, programs, not just through Wall Street, but through Main Street, especially if a lot of this, and it will be happening after the 2020 elections, when we have a socialist president and a socialist Congress, there's going to be all sorts of direct aid where the government is running huge debts and giving money directly to individuals, and it's all going to be financed by the Federal Reserve buying up all those bonds with the Federal Reserve, notes that it creates out of thin air. And this is going to be a disaster for the bond market, the corporate bond market. I went over uh, the problems in the corporate bond market on my last podcast, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, all these investors, everybody who has loaned out money for long periods of time at low interest rates is going to be in trouble. Everybody who is betting, oh, we're going to have a recession, so the Fed's going to cut rates, so I want to load up on bonds. They are they are fighting the last war. What they expect to happen and what's going to happen are opposite. In fact, you know, I was watching an interview on television with uh, Judy Shelton, who is under consideration right for Trump's nominee to be on the Federal Open Market Committee. You know, after uh, Herman Cain dropped out and um, Stephen Moore dropped out, so Judy Shelton is you know, now up for consideration. And, you know, she's a advocate of the gold standard, uh, you know, like Cudlow uh, was, right? And like uh, Stephen Moore and like um, Alan Greenspan was a proponent of the gold standard. Judy has defended the gold standard. And I was listening to this interview and she was talking about how the Federal Reserve should not be setting interest rates, that the market should be setting interest rates, which of course I 100% agree with. But then she went on to say that the Fed should not be raising rates, that they should cut rates, that she's afraid the Fed is going to screw up. But rates need to be higher. That's the point. If she's saying she doesn't want the Fed manipulating rates, then rates need to be higher, not lower, because the Fed is the only reason that rates are this low. So you can't say on the one hand, you don't want the Fed to set rates. And on the other hand, you think rates are too high and that the Fed should cut. You are contradicting yourself. Now, I know, and I mentioned just earlier in this podcast, that Long-term interest rates are falling now, but the Fed is not cutting. So the Fed is not doing that, right? The market is bringing down long-term interest rates, not the Fed. But it's only because the market is anticipating what the Fed is going to do. That is why the market is bringing rates down, because the markets are seeing all these inflationary warning signs that the Fed is denying. Now, of course, the market knows that this is business as usual for the Fed because the Federal Reserve will never acknowledge a recession in advance. And I've talked about that on the podcast and why that's so. I mean, one of the main reasons that the Fed never wants to acknowledge a recession is because they don't want it to become a uh, self-perpetuating prophecy. They don't want to say we think there's going to be a recession and then that causes a recession. Because in the Fed's mind, if they are not positive on the economic outlook, if they start saying we're worried, that is going to influence behavior. That if the Fed is worried, then the markets will react. Businesses will react. Companies might not invest. After all, I don't want to make this capital investment because the Fed thinks there's going to be a recession. And if I make the investment and there's a recession... I, you know, I could lose money or, hey, I don't want to hire these extra people because the Fed is worried about a recession. So I'm going to hold off on my hiring plans until we see what happens. Or maybe I should start firing people in advance, get ready for the recession, right? Hunker down, you know. So the Fed does not want to risk causing a recession by admitting it's worried that one's going to happen. In fact, one of the things the Fed is hoping to do to avoid the recession is to act all confident. They want to be, everything is great. So if there is a business that is thinking about making a capital investment, but they're worried about the economy, but then they hear the Fed talk about how great everything is, well, then they may make that investment after all, or a company may expand and hire more people if the Fed is really optimistic on the economy. Now, I've talked about that. That's a problem. Because if the economy is really headed in recession, we don't want to encourage businesses to over-invest or overhire and make bad decisions that they're going to regret and that they're going to have to unravel. We'd rather have businesses prepared in advance for a recession so they can weather it better, right? And so it won't be as severe. But all the Fed is caring about is extending the time period before the recession begins. And so if they can create some false optimism so they can keep businesses hiring and investing a little bit longer, then the recession won't start until later. Now, even if it ends up being deeper as a result of all those that false optimism, well, they don't care about that because they'll, they'll cross that bridge when they get to it. But I think the markets know, right, based on the Fed's track record, that even if the Fed is worried about the economy, they're not going to say that. And that's exactly what they're doing. But if you look at all the economic data that's been coming out, not just in the U.S., but all around the world, it's hard to conclude that we're not headed for recession. And when you think about the fact that that this is already the longest economic expansion or the second longest ever. I'm not sure exactly. We're getting close to the point where it's the longest ever, but we're already way past the point where most recessions die of old age. And so the idea that we're not near a recession makes absolutely no sense. Then you throw in the trade war on top of all that. It would be a miracle if the U.S. economy avoided recession. And in fact, I think Donald Trump, too, one of the reasons that he's digging in his heels, too, on the, the tariffs is that if we're going to have a recession, at least he can say, look, this is worth the pain, right? There's a big payoff at the end of this. Uh, we're going to you know, teach China a lesson. Uh, and, and so we're at war. And, 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 and during a war, you got to make some sacrifices, right? There's some collateral damage. And the economy was great. But because our economy is so great, we can afford this trade war. Yes, even if we have to have a short-term recession, don't worry. It's going to be worth it. And by the way, if it was only for the Fed, if it wasn't for the Fed, we wouldn't even be in a recession if they'd only cut interest rates like I told them. And in fact, one of the things I said is Trump is hoping that the trade war maybe will get the recession going a little bit sooner, that he can blame on the trade war. But then the Fed can come to the rescue with QE and rate cuts and Trump is hoping that by the time the 2020 election rolls around, that the, that trick would have worked its magic and the markets will be roaring and the economy will be coming back because we'll be back to zero. But as I said earlier in the podcast, it isn't going to work that way again. It is going to blow up uh, on the Fed. It's going to blow up on Trump. It is not going to ignite a boom in asset prices. It's going to ignite a boom in commodities, in the cost of living, you know, in oil prices, You know, gold prices are going to go up. The dollar is going to get killed because nobody expects this. Yes, there is some expectation that the Fed is going to cut rates, but nobody expects the Fed to go back to zero, which is what they're going to do. Nobody is expecting the Fed to go back to QE, which is exactly what they're going to do. And nobody is expecting inflation to accelerate even as the U.S. economy falls into recession, which is exactly what's going to happen. And so all the things that are going to happen are completely unexpected which is why the investment opportunities are so incredible because all the assets are mispriced because everybody is prepared for another deflationary, mild recession where the you know the, the U.S. is the, the cleanest shirt in the hamper and everybody once again rushes into U.S. treasuries and U.S. assets because the rest of the world is so much worse off. The United States, it is the opposite that's going to happen. It's the U.S. that is going ha- to fall the hardest Everybody is going to be looking to flee overpriced U.S. assets, U.S. bonds, U.S. dollars, U.S. stocks. People are going to be seeking out safety abroad, outside the U.S., Right in foreign markets, and in commodities, and in real money, and in gold. The things that I already own, Right, that's what everybody is going to be rushing to buy. But of course, when everybody is rushing to buy them, they're going to be paying a much higher price in order to convince people to sell. Right, because if you want to buy gold from somebody, you gotta convince them to sell it. Well, the people who are smart enough to buy it, right, below thirteen hundred, they're not selling at fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred, they're not even selling at two thousand. In order to get people who really understand what's gonna happen to this economy to sell, there's gonna have to be much, much higher prices. And of course, the other thing that everybody is complacent on is the deficits and the size of the deficits and exactly what they mean. Because the 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 amount of debt that's going to have to be monetized in the next round of quantitative eas- is off the charts, completely off the charts. And in fact, I watched another interview today on CNBC, and I forget who the guy was, but he was from the Office of Management and Budget. And I think, um, I forget who, it, it was a woman that was questioning him. I don't remember who it was. But- she was pretty convinced that we don't have to worry about the, the debt. And one of the points that she made was that we've just had a strong economic growth. We had you know 3.2% in Q1. By the way, I think tomorrow we're going to get uh, another look at that number. And so maybe they'll revise it down a little bit. We'll see. Uh, but I think the real revisions are going to come uh, when we get Q2, which is going to put everything in perspective. Because a lot of the one-off events that worked to, you know, to the plus in Q1 are going to have the opposite effect to the downside in, in Q2. But she was making the point that we had all this economic growth despite the fact that we had this big increase in the debt. And so her conclusion was this proves that debts don't matter, right? If we could still have a strong economy as we're growing the debt, then we don't have to worry about the debt. And she asked this guy if he agreed to that. And at least he said no. At least he was smart enough to say, no, I don't buy into that. I still think that that's a problem. But the fact that she could ask such a stupid question or make such a stupid observation, look, the whole point of running big deficits is to goose the economy. I mean, that's what happens in the short run. So the fact that we really jacked up the deficit and we got a boost in GDP, that's what's supposed to happen. That's why politicians want to gun the deficits because they want to boost GDP. It's just that they normally wait until we're in a recession to do that. Right? That's when you get the stimulus. That's when you get the Keynesian pump priming, right you you increase government spending, you cut taxes, you run bigger deficits to drive the economy out of recession. Now I, this this doesn't work because it just makes the problems worse, but just like steroids, you know they can make you it, it can work in the short run. it can make you feel better or make you look better. And so they, they try to you know dress up the economy by you know providing this artificial stimulus and you get the boost in GDP. This is the difference that's significant that this you know CNBC anchor was missing is that we are running these huge deficits when the economy is already good. Supposedly, we weren't in a recession. We are running big deficits at the point of the business cycle where we normally would run smaller deficits or surpluses. Because what happens is you run up the big deficits to get the economy going, right? To get it out of recession. But then once it starts growing again, the deficits are supposed to come down because now you have a stronger economy. So the government doesn't have to spend as much money on all these counter cyclical you know, safety net type programs. And the treasury gets all this extra revenue. From all the business activity, from the higher income taxes, from you know the capital gains taxes, right? All the tax revenues that are coming in in the expanding economy, and so that brings the deficits back down. But if we're already running one and a half trillion dollar deficits, record annual budget deficits, when the economy is growing, that means the deficit is an even bigger problem now than it's ever been. Because if the deficit is not shrinking when the economy is growing then that means the deficit is never going to shrink. If we're now running a situation where the debts get bigger, no matter where we are in the business cycle, and obviously if the debts are growing this much during the recovery, imagine how they're going to grow during the next recession. They're going to grow again, $3 trillion a year, $4 trillion a year. And then what happens in the recovery? The debt keeps going. Again, if the debt is always going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger, No matter where we are in the business cycle, and in fact, if we're going to have bigger deficits in the recoveries than we have in the recessions, right, that follow, because if this pattern holds, whatever record deficits we're going to set during this recession will be exceeded in the next recovery, and then those will be exceeded in the next uh, recession to be exceeded again in the next recovery, except we're not going to be able to make it that far. Because once the markets perceive this, it's all over. It's perception that counts, right? And initially, people incorrectly perceived that this was temporary, that the Fed could reverse its policy, that it could turn off these spigots. When it realizes the spigots are open forever, then we're going to drown in a sea of money, massive inflation, and none of this is going to work. And when these people are saying, oh, you know, this has proven that deficits don't matter, just when you think they don't matter, that's when they matter most. You know, even when Trump was talking about this infrastructure spending, right, the only reason that Trump is saying he's not doing infrastructure, it's not because we can't afford it. It's not because we're broke. He has no problem borrowing money. He's saying that he's not going to negotiate with the Democrats until they stop the investigation, right? And as soon as they stop the investigation, he's going to give them the big fat pork barrel infrastructure spending bill that they want. And in fact, now that, you know, you've got the, uh, the Mueller report and you've got, I mean, I watched the press conference this morning. And basically the takeaway is, look, the, the commission, they're not exonerating Trump. He said, if we, if we had information that exonerated him, we would present it, but we don't. So, you know, we're not going to say that he didn't disrupt uh, the investigation because we can't, but, you know, we're not, you know, going to indict him because it's pointless because, you know, you, you can't prosecute a sitting president. So there's no point in indicting somebody that can't be tried. Uh, It wouldn't be fair. So basically what they're saying, you know, with a wink is, look, if he wasn't sitting president, we probably would have indicted him because we had some evidence. We had some probable cause that maybe obstructed justice. But because we can't try him, we didn't even consider it, which, of course, now you've got the Democrats talking impeachment again, because basically what Mueller is saying is, look, look. The proper venue is not for us to charge him because he's a sitting president. If you think he did something wrong, then you need to impeach him. You need to get him out of office. And then once he's no longer a sitting president, well then if there's it, you know, we could indict him then, but we can't do it now. But if Trump is going to try to give the Democrats a, 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 a big spending bill as basically a bribe for not, you know, doing the impeachment or not calling off the investigation then who knows how much deficit spending we could have. These deficits could end up getting a lot bigger even before the next recession starts. Although, I don't know, another thing that, that Trump might like as an excuse is if the Democrats actually do impeach him, and you know obviously the Senate is not going to convict, so whatever the, the House Democrats do, Trump knows that he's not in danger of actually being removed from office, but to the extent that the markets continue to fall... Trump can now blame the markets going down on the impeachment and the markets being nervous about the president actually being removed from office. And since he's so great for the economy, right, since Trump is the greatest president ever, we have the greatest economy ever. If we lose Trump, then we lose everything because Trump's the key to all of our success. So again, he could try to blame the sell-off in the market, maybe even the recession, on any kind of attempt on the part of the Democrats to impeach him because he can simply point to the impeachment and all the uncertainty that it supposedly creates and all the nervousness about the loss of you know this great president. Uh, and so that gives him another excuse, something to blame the recession on, something to blame the bear market on. But again, I don't think any of these excuses are going to work. I think when you promise to make America great again and you claim you've already made America great again and then you're running for election in a recession. Uh, you obviously failed at your mission and you're not going to get a second term. I want to wrap up the podcast again with another or some more comments on Bitcoin, which continues to rally. You know, as nobody is buying gold, right? A lot of people are buying what they believe is the new gold, digital gold. Bitcoin, as I am recording this, we're around 8,700 per Bitcoin. Uh, we haven't quite hit 9,000 yet on this rally, but it has been a ferocious rally. You know, it's almost a triple. Because Bitcoin was almost down to 3,000, not quite. I think we got down to about 3,200, and we haven't quite hit 9,000 yet. So off of that low, we've seen a triple. And this has emboldened uh, a lot of uh, Bitcoin hodlers into thinking, this is it. We're about to go to the moon. And so they're coming out of the woodwork, and they're really confident now that this is uh, the bear market is over, the crypto winter is over. And uh, this is a new summer and we're going to make new highs. We're going to take out 20,000 and we're going, you know, to infinity and beyond. Uh, None of this is likely to happen. I still believe the high is in. Uh, Is it possible that Bitcoin can get back to 20,000? Yeah, sure, it's possible. Uh, But I don't think it's probable at this point. I still think that this bear market rally is going to run out of steam. I think there is a coordinated effort on the part of some of the major Bitcoin whales uh, to work this market higher, to move this market higher, and to try to engender new buying. Try to get publicity. Try to get greed and the FOMO going. And you know, if they build it, it will come. Right? They're going to build this bull market, and then they expect uh, the market to take on a life of its own. Once they get it high enough and they get the animal spirits going and they get more people optimistic, all this, again, coordinated with this campaign uh, about dropping gold. And, you know, I was reading a few articles um, about Bitcoin, again, focusing on me, on the um, debate I did on the Internet uh, like a week ago or something. One of the points that I made, it was like, you know, a, a Bitcoin debate. Was that why Bitcoin wasn't going to be money and wouldn't be used as money. And I basically said, look, you know, it's not money. No one is going to use Bitcoin, uh, you know, as money because you're not people aren't pricing products in Bitcoin. People aren't entering into contracts in Bitcoin. You're not buying insurance policies that pay off in Bitcoin. People aren't making loans where the principal is denominated in Bitcoin, where the interest payments are Bitcoin. Uh, People aren't entering into employment contracts where they're getting paid salaries in Bitcoin. I made all these points. And now uh, there's this story, and I've seen it on many, many different uh, places, where I've been proven wrong because there's this company out there that has paid a number of its employees, I think a lot of employees, in Bitcoin. And since they're being paid in Bitcoin, this proves that I'm wrong. Peter Schiff said nobody is going to be paid their salary in Bitcoin. And here we have an example of a company that's paying their workers in Bitcoin. So Peter Schiff is wrong and Bitcoin is money because all these people are getting their salaries in Bitcoin. And the article itself is a fraud. That is not what I meant. That is not what I said. When I talk about getting a salary in Bitcoin, it's where you are working for a specific quantity of bitcoin right let's say your salary is going to be one bitcoin a month that's your job right so that's what bitcoin is about 8000 or not quite or almost 9000 so one bitcoin a month would be about 9000 a month i mean that's an okay salary for some people to earn but would somebody agree to accept one bitcoin a month which if they got paid weekly they'd get paid about a quarter of a bitcoin every week is somebody going to work For that? No. Because when people take a job, they want to know how much they're going to earn because they have various expenses. And those expenses are not in Bitcoin. If you have rent, your rent is not in Bitcoin. If you live in the United States, your rent is in dollars. Now, most people, there's a rule of thumb. Maybe your week's salary should be your month's rent. Well, is someone going to accept a weekly salary of a quarter of a Bitcoin? I mean, is their landlord going to accept a quarter of a Bitcoin in rent? You know, no, no one's going to give you a year lease where your rent is, you know, a quarter of a Bitcoin. I mean, people are not going to enter into these contracts because they're too volatile. Look, an employer is not going to agree to pay an employee in Bitcoin because what if the price doubles or triples? Now I have to pay triple the salary. Or the employee, the worker doesn't want to agree to it. What if the price falls and my salary gets cut in half? I mean, most people are living paycheck to paycheck. They can't take that kind of volatility because the grocery store doesn't take Bitcoin, right? Um, you know, the utility bills don't take Bitcoin. They have to make their credit card payments. You know, they have to pay their taxes. I mean, you can't do that now. What they are doing is let's say you have a job and your salary is in dollars and you get paid every two weeks. Well, what is happening at this company is when the pay is due, and let's say you're due, you know, $2,000. What the company is doing is then buying the Bitcoin and then paying the employee in Bitcoin. Or if it's a company that happens to have some Bitcoin, because the guy just, I don't know how, maybe he's speculating in Bitcoin and he has a store, you know, he can then transfer the Bitcoin to the employee, but that's not a salary in Bitcoin. That's just payment being affected using Bitcoin. You're taking a dollar salary and then figuring out how many Bitcoin you can buy with those dollars on that pay date and then making that transaction. So the salary is in dollars, but the payments are being affected using Bitcoin. That is not what I was talking about. And that does not prove me wrong. And I think the people writing these articles know this. But again, this is all about propaganda to pretend that Bitcoin is being used as money, just like you know when they, they started BitPay. And I keep hearing all these people when they talk about Schiff Gold, oh, Schiff keeps saying that Bitcoin isn't used as money, but he accepts Bitcoin in payment for gold. No, I don't. Nobody does but yes everybody wants to create that impression it's a false impression because all a bitpay does is enable people who have bitcoin to sell them at the point of purchase to get dollars and then use dollars to buy gold i mean when shift gold sells gold and it allows somebody to use bitcoin shift gold never gets any bitcoin I mean, there are people who are out there trying to claim that, oh, Peter Schiff is hes collecting all these Bitcoins that he's getting for selling gold. I never actually get any Bitcoins. Schiff Gold doesn't see the Bitcoins. The Bitcoins are sold before we get our hands on the money. We're not selling gold and accepting Bitcoins. We're selling gold and accepting dollars. Our customers are selling their Bitcoin and getting dollars. And then when they get dollars, they're taking those dollars and, and they're buying gold. In fact, I saw another guy who did a video who mentioned something about Jeff, you know, Jeff, he interviewed Jeffrey Tucker or listened to an interview with Jeff Tucker, who did a debate with me at Freedom Fest, which is the the one debate I won because we had more of a neutral audience. And it was it was it was two on two in that debate. But but Jeff Tucker, you know, was talking about the fact that I told him, hey, I got Bitcoin, I got Bitcoin Cash, I got Ether. And this guy was trying to infer from that that I'm loading up on these cryptocurrencies. And even though I'm trashing them in public, I'm buying them in private. And that maybe the reason I'm trashing Bitcoin is because I want to get it cheaper so that I can buy it, which is complete nonsense. I mean, basically, if I had a bunch of Bitcoin and I was that unscrupulous, I would be touting it. I would be participating in the pump so I can dump, right? But yes, I, I did tell Jeffrey Tucker that I own some Bitcoin and some Bitcoin Cash and some Ether. But if you add up all three cryptocurrencies, it's less than a hundred bucks. And I didn't buy him, I got it for free. So I was just kind of showing him, hey, here's my wallet. So actually I own some of this stuff. But I mean I don't own enough to make a difference. I didn't buy it. But the the, the YouTube video was trying to create the false impression that hey, Peter Schiff is buying Bitcoin, so you should buy Bitcoin too. And you know, that's not you know, that's not what I'm saying and that's not what i'm doing and it's it's all about creating the false impression the false impression that it's being used as money the false impression that people are working for salaries in bitcoin they're not and you know if you actually wanted to use bitcoin as a means of payment it's very expensive i mean if you because when you get your bitcoin you need to sell them right anybody who gets paid in bitcoin they have to pay their rent they got to buy groceries Right, they got to make their car payment. They got to, you know, pay their kids' tuition or whatever they have to do. They have to sell Bitcoin to do that, right? Because none of these uh, other parties are 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 looking for Bitcoin. They all want dollars or euros or yen, whatever country you happen to be in. So, if your employer has to take dollars and then buy you Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin and then he sends you bitcoin and then you take the bitcoin to sell them to get back to dollars it's much cheaper if your employer just you know direct deposits the dollars the, the slippage is far lower than on the cost to convert your bitcoin and more importantly the market risk that you take the spread the bid and the ask and how much the market could potentially move between the time your employer buys the bitcoin and the time you sell them to get the dollars so that you can you know live your life now yes if You Your goal is to accumulate Bitcoin. If that's your goal and you don't even and you don't need your salary, right? If you have all your expenses covered or maybe like you're a babysitter and you're living at home and you don't have any overhead and you are just going to take your babysitting money and buy Bitcoin with it anyway, if that's what you are going to do and now you're sitting for somebody who also has Bitcoin and you guys agree, hey, pay me in Bitcoin. He has Bitcoin and you want Bitcoin. That can work, right? You know. That's not going to happen on a broader scale because Bitcoin is never going to succeed in becoming money. Right now, yes, there is a a core group of people who value it, who perceive that it has value and they want it. They only want it because they think other people are going to want it and they think they're going to pay a higher price for it. So what people are actually buying into when they buy Bitcoin is the dream of wealth, right? How high this is going to go when everybody in the world finally adopts Bitcoin as the global currency and medium of exchange, and all of the purchasing power that is currently embodied in dollars, and euros, and yen, and and, and, and yuan, when all that and gold, because gold's going away too, it's all going to be Bitcoin, right? Or maybe one of these other cryptocurrencies. Who knows? Uh, but they think they're just going to be super rich, and I think it's 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 that wealth and that greed and that fantasy that really prevents people from seeing reality. And when they accuse me of of, you know, not understanding the technology or just not getting it or being old or all all the different things that they say to rationalize away why um, I'm not in favor, why I'm not a believer, right? I mean, and it's easy when they get a guy like Warren Buffett or Jamie Dimon. Oh, those guys are part of the establishment. They're part of the banksters. I mean, they feel threatened by Bitcoin. But then they say the same thing about me. See, I feel threatened by Bitcoin because I have a gold business, right? Well, look, if I believed in Bitcoin, I could just take all the money that I would have in gold and I could just buy up Bitcoin and I could be just as, I could be richer. I could be a Bitcoin billionaire, right? If if Bitcoin is really going to go as high as everybody believes, then what am I wasting my time telling people to buy gold for, right? I I could buy up a bunch of Bitcoin too. Why do I care, right? It's got nothing to do with any kind of bias that I have or any kind of business that I have. Look, if I actually thought this could work, I would be its its loudest uh, proponent, I would have been a big uh, proponent of it from the beginning. It's because I knew it ultimately wouldn't work, which is the reason I didn't want to get behind it, because I knew eventually a bunch of people would be left wholly the bag. I wasn't going to try to help people make money by getting in and out of a Ponzi scheme, right? Hey, let's make a little money and let's cash out by selling to a bunch of idiots who are going to lose a lot of money, right? It's hard to get behind something based on that basis, you have to actually believe in the longevity of uh, of Bitcoin and actually believe that it's going to deliver on the promise that everybody is betting on, but everybody is betting wrong.